0: I invite your attention to the text for our consideration. Gospel of Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 45, I read, "...and straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray." And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out, for they all saw him. And were troubled, and immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer; it is I. Be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered, for they considered not of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. When the last disciples were upon the sea in such circumstances as this, the master was in the ship with them. In fact, from that earlier account, you will recall that he was in the hinder part of the ship. And historians inform us that his place of repose was none other than the helmsman's seat. And I bid you pause and taste the sweetness of that honeycomb of truth. Storm-tossed saint, he was in the helmsman's seat. But this time was different. The teacher had bid them gather up the fragments of another miraculous meal, board the ship, and he compelled them to row. Row without him. Row toward the opposite shore. So here was the beginning of this trial. With their backs to the other shore, as they rowed away, they watched his form on the seaside grow smaller and smaller to their perception, squinting at last perhaps to catch the slightest outline and then... Then he disappeared from their view. Whatever hopes they cherished that the Lord would somehow soon join them were by degrees diminished, if not altogether extinguished, with every degree of the sun's declining, until at last we are told by the Apostle John it was now dark and Jesus was not come unto them. Whatever small swells of encouragement might arise from their fellow's company, this disconsolate thought as related by Peter to Mark in our text must have quickly quenched them all. The ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And if the stifling darkness was broken for a time by the light of the moon or the glimmer of a familiar star, soon even this small comfort was denied them because the wind, the waves, and the skies now seemed conspired together to take away their peace and perhaps their lives. And so in the midst of the sea, with the wind driving the waves into their backs, without light to see by or star by which to navigate, fears increasing and the Master absent, they were left only with this, to row. He had commanded them, row! Row to the other side! And in this... They were obedient. But obedience itself surely raised ancient Rebecca's question higher and higher in each breast with every slap of their oar into the troubled waters. If it be so, why am I thus? Some of us have rowed long upon this sea. And if you are His... By that effectual call, you may set it down ashore that you shall soon enough row on this sea. Row against wind and tide. Row long into the night. Row so far into the storm that its fury drowns out even your own sighs from your ears. You'll row, as it were, unseen and unseeing because the thick darkness hides at times even your fellow oarsmen from you. You'll row while it seems the shepherd has become a stranger to your peril. You'll row as Dr. McLaren, with a voice full of experience, describes it. You'll row until our tears weave a veil which hides them. Or the darkness obscures his face, and we see nothing, nothing but the threatening crests of the waves curling high above our little boat. Yes, dear brethren, the Master has commanded that we row. Row on that sea and in that ship and in that storm. Yes. But oh my fellow rowers, in the midst of this scene brim full of darkness and pain, wind and waves, exhaustion and despair and threatened destruction, there is a glorious word comes sweeping down from the mountain beside that sea. And it comes by way of the inspired record. And it is this. He saw them. He saw them. That mountain was not only a closet for prayer, but it was also a vista from which He watched over His little flock. He saw them toiling. Yes, sir. As infinite wisdom directed every wave that broke over their ship and every gust that opposed their progress, it was omnipotence that made that boat an ark and shut them in as safely as the eight that survived the world that was. Yes, sir. He saw them. He saw every feeble stroke of their oars, heard every groan of growing weakness, knew every rising thought that the next wave might be their destruction. In a word, He was touched with the feelings of their infirmities. And in all their affliction, He was afflicted. He saw and He sees. And He hears. He knows and He feels. And from the mountain of His everlasting throne in that tabernacle not made with hands, while darkness seems to hide Him from us, He sees no less clearly. He sees us toiling. Or as the the original has it, He sees us tortured in rowing. Yes, sir. But seeing... He watched and watching, he waited. Night fell and he waited. The storm arose and he waited. The waves threatened and he waited. The wind mocked their slightest progress and he waited. Nearly four miles into the darkest hours of night,
1: he waited.
0: Speak! Dear brother, answer, dear sister. Has he waited thus in the midst of your storm? Yes, sir. While you rode in your ship, upon your sea, in your night? Yes, testify, it has been or perhaps is now so. And your obedience to his command makes it all the more perplexing. Yes, sir. He compelled you into that ship on this sea and bid you row at the very moment you had been basking in the wonder of His person and power. O saint, to you who are rowing and to you who will soon row here, our text has a further word. For you see in all the masters waiting... In all the masters waiting upon that mountain, there was an hour, an hour fixed from all eternity. As completely unknown as it was to those rowers, the prince himself had ordained the very moment of time ere time itself began. Then heaven's clock struck the appointed hour. The waiting was ended. The Father bid Him go, and the Son descended from mountain to sea. And neither wind, nor waves, nor darkness, nor even the doubts and fears of His disciples could delay Him. For we are told that in the fourth watch of the night, He cometh unto them. Amen. And oh. He cometh in royal majesty yes, sir. making the angry waves a solid pavement beneath his feet yes, and the winds a regal robe of glory about him. This this, dear saints, is the fulfillment of a thousand prophecies and pictures and promises in that former testament. The Lord which maketh a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. Isaiah 43, verse 16. He maketh the storm a calm Yes, sir. So that the ways thereof are still. Psalm 107, verse 29. And a man shall be a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest. Isaiah 32, verse 2, and a thousand more that we could quote. And if our blistered hands and exhausted hearts and doubting minds have fashioned a phantasm out of our fears as he approaches, Our confused cries will not yet go unanswered. Did you not see it further in the text? He talked immediately with them. He will make His voice to be heard above all the winds and waves, through all the darkness and obscurity, and despite all the fears and even our incoherent cries of terror. Oh, what words are these, distressed rower? As he said to these disciples, so will he speak to your soul those words as they are in the original. Take courage. I am. Amen. Stop fearing. Amen. You will know of a surety that Jehovah, I am is come and speaks as clearly in your storm as He did to Moses in that burning bush. And He says, this is your hour of deliverance and peace. Yes, yes, He saw and He came and He spoke. But was that all? No, dear saint, for there is yet another wonder. We are made to know He went aboard their ship unto... Nay, our translation hardly expresses the sense, not unto. He went up, the text tells us, face to face with them. No, not as on Sinai of old when Israel heard only the voice. Now Jehovah Jesus comes and holds communion face to face, friend with friend, shepherd with his sheep. I am with his covenant people. Here is a wonder indeed.
1: A tapestry
0: of interwoven wonders by which... The disciples are trained. All creation is shown to be His to command. Christ is magnified and the Father is glorified. He saw. He came. He spoke. And He communed. Adore weary rower. He sees. And at the set time He shall come and speak and commune and we shall see that all was well done and that we are brought safe to the other side. But with this wonder comes a warning. Why should the disciples be in the literal rendering of the text extremely, immeasurably, out of their minds and astonished as though this were to be unexpected and impossible? The inspired record assigns this very reason. Lack of contemplation due to calloused hearts. The loaves, my brethren, the loaves they failed to understand. And why were they doubly guilty in this matter? Because the loaves were silent witnesses against them all. They had but hours before seen the Master create food. And the evidence of it was where? It was at their feet in the boat. Twelve baskets full of loaves. One for each of them that they themselves had carried aboard. One thing only was necessary to settle their hearts, quiet their fears, dismiss their doubts, and fasten their faith to the rock. Turn your gaze from the raging storm and look at the lows between your feet. Amen. Toiling rowers. Have we not received indisputable demonstrations of His provision, undeniable evidences of His power, and unceasing tokens of His care? In a word, did He not fill your basket with loaves ere He set you upon that scene? And does He not say to you now by this text, Look at the loaves! Had they but looked away from the tempest or away from the fear-laden faces of their friends and cast their eyes and kept them upon the loaves, how different might have been their reaction to His coming. But this requires a heart of faith. And faith requires constant consideration of the loaves in your ship. Here is a wonder, fellow sailors. It is the mountain ascender, the sea walker, the peace speaker, the friend and helmsman of your soul who sees and comes and reveals himself and communes with you at the darkest hour of your fiercest storm. But here also is a warning. Look to the lows. Fix your gaze there, lest a calloused heart make you insensible
1: of his coming. Psalm 72, verse number 13. He shall spare the poor and needy. And shall save the souls of the needy. <clears throat> Once more, he shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. What is there to say? This was the question that I, that plagued my mind as I dozed into my preparation for this admonition. As I considered here our little kirk, to use the old Scottish word, I asked myself what could be said to admonish and encourage the people gathered here in retrospect of the year we have all experienced. It is no question that we have been living in difficult foreign times. We have experienced great affliction, great sorrow. And never ceasing uncertainty. We have indeed become quite familiar with the footsteps of Mr. Death. As we have heard him draw nigh many times throughout the past year. Sometimes the footsteps were quite distant and faint. Yet other times they were unbearably deafening. As he walked by our very doors and into the houses of our neighbors, friends, and our families. It was these considerations that caused me to pause and ask, indeed, what is there to say? What words of comfort can be spoken for we poor, few spared ones? It was that little word that startled me. Spared. Spared, you ask? Yes, spared. You and I have been spared. But why? But why? Why, after all that has been experienced the past year, why have these few been spared? I freely admit this consideration puzzled me exceedingly. Here this little church stands, though afflicted, And having surely stared Mr. Death in the face at time, spared. I could take it no longer. I began to search the scriptures for an answer to this question. Why hast thou been spared? In my searching, I stumbled quite providentially upon the text I've read to you. He, the King, shall spare the poor and needy. Ah, poor and needy indeed, he has spared. I look within and then about and cannot find such a one as poor and needy as he who fills my shoes. Though I should search high and low in all the earth. The text before us then stands true, does it not? Surely there is not one here who when looking within, can doubt the veracity of this text. He will and has spared the poor and needy. This is the way of our God. Whether we look at the temporal sparing of the saints' life on earth or at the eternal sparing of their souls, He will spare the poor and the needy. Ah, you say, this is all well and good. And we can see the truth of the text. But you still have not answered the question proposed. Why have we been spared? We note that we are poor and needy indeed. But that only enhances the bewilderment as to why we have been spared. And quite frankly we cannot see there to be an answer in our text. Why would the king spare such poor and needy ones as ourselves? We are weak and foolish. We cannot walk the path. We cannot rise to the occasion. We can only disappoint. The question cries out louder than before. Why has God spared such ones as Bunyan's Mr. Mind and Mr. Ready to Hunt? Oh, dear church, I hear the cries of your heart. For mine has cried daily the same. But you cannot see an answer in the text before you. All you can see is the whom God has spared and not the why. Ah, but church, I say that this text is the key to solving the perplexing problem before you. You see, to understand the why, you must truly understand the whom. You say that you are weak and foolish. I concur. You say that you cannot walk the path. Cannot rise to the occasion, can only disappoint. I concur. You say that at times you feel you are near kindred to Mr. Feblemind and Mr. Ready to Hall. Again, I concur, for I am the same as you. And the evidence speaks for itself. God has spared the poor and the needy. See the so indeed we have seen and understood whom he has spared. Now may I appeal to these scriptures. Appeal to the scripture with this understanding in mind. For ye see, ye see, ye see, your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble were called, but God hath chosen the foolish thing of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to break, to naught things that are. Why, why, why? That no flesh may glory in his presence. Whose presence? The king's presence. Christ the king. Take heart for dear poor and needy ones. The king has a purpose. Yes. You say that you are unable and can only disappoint. God will get to himself great glory through your weakness. You say that you are of the same heart as Mr. Feeble Mind. Well then creep on. Creep on. See what praise is bestowed upon the King. When a creeper climbs up to Mount Zion. Yes, sir. I cannot help but hear to recall the words of that hymn. I saw the wayward traveler in yes, yes. tattered garments clad. Yes, While struggling up the mountain, it seemed that he was sad. His back was laden heavy. His strength was almost gone. Yet shouted as he journeyed, Deliverance will come. Then yes, palms of victory, crowns of glory, palms of victory. Ah, shall we? Yes, indeed. You say that your life is almost spent. You know not how much longer you have to be of use. Well, let me remind you. That the king can do more with you in one year. Yea, one month than he has in all of your life thus far. Yes, sir. He's so determined. Yes, sir. So again I say take heart. Gird thyself. Prepare thyself for the service of the king. And whenever one may ask in 2022. Why hast thou been spared? May the answer be given as it was for that lowly who The Lord hath need of him. The Lord hath need of him. Poor and needy we may be. None so foolish. None so weak. Yet for his glory may we be. Vessels of honor. Spared indeed. Your copy of God's Word, second Corinthians chapter four, we read these words in verse five. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake, but we have this treasure. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Preachers are strange things. Of course, I don't mean just any preachers. Time will not allow me today to note the differences between the ones about whom the Lord said, I have not sent them, Jeremiah 29. And those who can truly say, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, Romans 15 and 19. But I'm not talking about the men that Mr. Foxcroft said blurt out the romantic forgeries and false visions of a distempered brain for the faith once delivered to the saints. And prophesy lies, the shadows of a dream having no better light than the moonshine of unsanctified reason. No, I have in mind only those that are called of God and are being faithful to his charges for them. Such men, said Mr. Perkins, are thin on the ground, one of a thousand. And these faithful shepherds are strange things. They are faces. They are hands and feet. They are the arms and legs of Christ in this doleful and dangerous world. It's their calling in a special way to look the world in the face and represent the king in all his purity and majesty. It's theirs to take the hands of the backward and help them along to heaven, to stand when others stumble. It's theirs to carry the young and the feeble and to run the vast expanse of the earth with the news of the prince. But what man... Among us could hope to execute these duties with any degree of the perfection owed to Christ. None. And yet they are appointed of God to endeavor to attempt it. Are they not strange things? Called to do what they cannot hope to accomplish in the way that they ought to accomplish pressed by the Spirit of God to spend themselves in an effort doomed to appear as failure while plagued with feelings of uselessness, handsomely rewarded by their generation with scorn, but mostly by their own people with that greater adversary apathetic disregard. They earnestly wish to broadcast the truth and yet dig out their own seed at times by the fits of the old man still inside them. What a bizarre collection of opposing forces they represent. Never a more unlikely candidate to carry messages for the king of glory, but that is their task. Is it not a paradox? A thing that seems to be a contradiction or plainly absurd. Indeed, it is a curious piece of God's special arrangements for his kingdom. But brethren, here is the crucial thing to remember in 2022. It is a feature of God's special arrangement. So my desire is simple and twofold today. To the church, I would say, some of us are very well acquainted with affliction. Most of us are acquainted with some sorrow. But church, I want to remind you today, scripture teaches there is something worse than affliction. It's the loss of your teachers. Well, you will eat the bread of adversity, Isaiah said. And you will drink the water of affliction. But the good news is, there's good news. Yes, I will not remove your teachers. It's not the famine of food you better dread, warned the prophet Amos. It's the famine of the hearing of the word of God. Do we dread that this coming year? Have we wasted it in the past? I would ask you to reason together with me for a moment now. Apart from the natural backwardness of our own hearts, what is the greatest stumbling block for you to receiving the preaching and instruction of the counsel of God from anybody? Tell the truth now to the Holy Spirit. It's the person that delivers it. Isn't that right? Let us not fail to recognize the curious arrangement of Christ. Preachers and teachers appointed by heaven are earthen vessels, but they carry the treasure from God. Proverbs 17 and verse 10 does not say a reproof from a perfect and sweet person is received by a wise man. It says this and nothing more than this. A reproof entereth into a wise man more than a hundred stripes into a fool. Let us not be fools when the counsel of God comes to us. More than any besides his own wife. I know the failings and flaws of your pastor. And when he stands before you. There stands the confirmation of those words already quoted. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world. And base things of the world. And things which are despised. Comma. Hath God chosen. So. Whether it be your pastor or your pastor's wife or any other preacher or teacher of Christ, for that matter, any person of any kind that God may use to speak a word of counsel to you, you be sure not to miss the jewel for the blemishes on the chest. Church, let us remember that the Master has chosen To distribute his treasures in clay pots. And remember that God, in another stroke of mysterious genius, has hinged the ordinary growth of his kingdom upon the earth upon the labors of these broken messengers. Can you believe it? But you must. But you must. Because God chosen, almost as if constrained by a secret law, not his own and left to wonder how else such an urgent task might be performed. The spirit of God cried out Romans 10 and 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Nobody likes to receive a word from a hypocrite. But brethren, what other kind of person is there? Really? What other kind of person could talk to you? Where's your faith at any rate? It should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, said Paul. So when you hear the counsel of God, Look for His beautiful hands that hold the ugly vessel and receive the treasure carried in it. What did Paul mean anyway when he said, Our brethren are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. Wherefore, show ye to them... And before the church is the proof of your love. Brethren, we each have something to prove. Prove your love to Christ. Prove your gratitude to God for not passing by our ignorant souls. Prove it to your teachers. And be warned that the same God that would have no man worship would yet have his instruments honored. For the preacher, I would say first to his fellow laborer: You know the Lord rarely calls a messenger without a help. None but a preacher's wife truly knows the plight of a preacher's wife. Inglorious, unheeded, like the carriage of a great gun. Unassuming, but the cradle for the exercise of power. The sheep look to the shepherd, but the shepherd looks to them. And in this there is a debt the sheep may never see they have, but Christ never fails to report. Hold this word in hand then. Whoso keepeth the fig tree shall eat the fruit, So he that waiteth on his master shall be honored. Pastor, let your own experience with the human heart remind you daily of the misery of the plight in which you find us week by week. Run up to the fountain another year, if God permit it, and fetch us some support. A faithful ambassador is medicine, Solomon said, and we are a sin sick people. Labor on for Christ's glory and for the benefit of never dying souls. Keep this word from Foxcroft in your hand. Acceptance and reward is in proportion to your degree of care and pains and not to the event and success. We will engage to raise your arms in prayer. Trust then in the merit of the treasure and not the clay of your vessel or the fickleness of the hearer. Discharge your duty with care and candor. You will row against the current, but you will row with the covenant. Put your back into the oars like he put his back into the smiters and may he one day make you One of Daniel's stars forever and ever. We've heard much already to admonish and encourage our hearts at this special hour. Turning the calendar to a new year. I would not tax your patience this afternoon, but join my voice also with that of my brothers with just a short word of further beautiful admonition from my text in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22. Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Here in this text... Even even while Noah is attending his newly built altar, just after that colossal destruction of a universal flood, God speaks to himself. <laughs> you see that in verse 21. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said, in his heart, God speaks to himself and declares that this irreversible, unalterable law, that as long as the earth remains, it is irrevocably fixed in his divinely appointed system. This rhythm, summer, winter, seed time, harvest, day, night. Time marches on, I titled my meditation. Time marches on. And that by the decree of our God. And what is time? In putting that question to your heart this afternoon, what is time? I have no interest in philosophical speculations of metaphysics. Time, as we use it, is nothing more than the recognition or really the measurement of God's established order. As seen in the fixed movements, the fixed movements of his universe. Our measurement of time, our observation of time does not establish that order, but rather that order establishes the movements And therefore defines time. Science, properly defined, does not establish or dictate the ordering of our universe. But science can only hope to accurately track it. This is the reality. This is the science established in our text while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter day and night shall not cease time marches on so then if such is the case and surely it is and if man is constitutionally mortal, that is we will die, then there remains to us this, that since the march of time is not a philosophical theory, but a fixed divine law, then nothing could be of greater value for man in time than to take a solemn and constant accounting of his (laughs) time. If we are mortal, and we surely are, and if this fixed law of God cannot be broken, and it cannot, whatever the speculations of science may be, whatever the philosophical guesses of men may be, whatever the wishings of deluded minds may be, this reality cannot be altered. Time marches on. And if that's so, then nothing could be more important for us than to take accounting of our time. Someone has wisely said, that the longest of human life is but a day multiplied. (laughs) It was, in fact, on New Year's Day, 315 years ago, that the great non-conformist minister, John Shower, in 1707, said this. 315 years ago, New Year's Day, John Shower said, When I consider that just yesterday was the conclusion of the last year, and that I am now entered on to another year, it is seasonable to reflect on my changeable condition and the short duration of all things in this world. Which are measured by time. That as they and I have our beginning, so we have our end. And that the distance or the space between the one and the other is but very little. Let me not rejoice, says John Shaw. O my soul, let me not rejoice and please myself too much in new enjoyments. Remembering that a change is at hand and the end of time for me is certain. The end of time for me, he said, is certain. John Shower said, Oh, my soul, though I know this is true, though I cannot, I dare not deny it. Yet how difficult is it to conquer the love of this world and of this body to that degree that I ought to. To undervalue the interest of a short, uncertain, and troublesome life in comparison to the permanent possession of everlasting good. Though I know that what is earthly and temporal must needs be thus changing and fading, and though I know that it is as true of man himself as of all other things under the sun, yet, how do I forget what man is, not only mutable in his state, his body and his life, but in his mind too, so as to love and hate and choose and neglect all the wrong things. May I just conclude our time together by leaving you with two brief considerations. I only name them. I'll not enlarge on them. First, I would give a consideration. I would encourage a consideration to you in the light of the march of time. I would encourage you who is not a Christian. If you are an unconverted, unbeliever, I would encourage you with these words again from John Shower. But though I know that within, within a few years at the farthest, I must leave this world by one or other of those ways. Though I have been dying ever since I began to live, And am dead already to last year. And to all the preceding portions of my time. And I know with all that what remains will quickly pass. And be gone after the same manner yet. How have I overloved this body. As if I should never live outside it. And set my heart and affection on this world as if I should never remove to another. And trifled away my precious time as if a change would never come. If you are not converted, if you know not Christ today, let me press this truth on you in Genesis eight twenty two, time marches on. And in some place, somewhere, possibly in 2022, you will run out of it. Do not leave the eternal consideration of your soul unattended. Shower said in another place, oh, in what shocking manner will death open my eyes by shutting the windows of my senses. So a word to the unbeliever, and then I close with a word to those of us that are believers, that trust Christ and know him. Shower would have a word for us as well. He said, how sad will be the review of our lost and ill-spent time. How different an opinion of its value we shall have on a sickbed or when our time and hope is gone. How many weeks and days and hours, oh my soul, have I trifled away in sloth and idleness, in foolishness, in hurtful company, in vain thoughts, in impertinent discourse, in excess of sleep and needless pastimes, feasting, inordinate care, To adorn a body that will die or gratify my sensual appetite. All that which is past is irrecoverable. And little remainder flies apace. How quickly will it be, gone? How soon, how suddenly may an unexpected stroke of death conclude it all? And yet, this is all the opportunity right now that I shall ever have to make my service to God. I thought it was curious, and I close with this. This was 1707. It was curious to me that Shower makes a Passing reference to the use of the sundial. (laughs) My wife and I were discussing her watch broke. We haven't been able to get another one or find get it fixed, and we were talking about needing a watch. They used a sundial in Shower's day. And he had this to say about the sundial. He said "Art." Have found a means to set spies and watches, as it were, on the sun. That he cannot look out, but that they take hold of his shadow and force it to tell far how far he's gone that day. <laughs> what a description. <laughs> Art has found a way, he said. That the sun itself can't even stick his head out without we grab his shadow and make him testify how far he's moved. <laughs> and yet, while we are curious in making time give an account of itself to us, how little do we to consider the account of our time that's to be given to God oh that such a thought might effectually persuade me to redeem the time that I may not tarry till the end of time to know the worth of it let me not undervalue it while it's given to me to be you that I may not eternally regret my folly when time shall be no more for me. May God help us. May God help us.